While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked them, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for about two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preached, preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. May God add his blessing to his word. If you were thinking about making a purchase, let's say a book, which kind of tells you where my thoughts go, uh, but you're thinking of purchasing a book, whether it be print or an electronic version, uh, what might you do before you actually make the purchase? Well, maybe you check out uh, if you can get a free sample online, download that, read a little bit, see if it interests you. Uh, perhaps you'd look at who the author is and try to find out a little about the author. Maybe what other books has this particular individual written? Uh, maybe you'd look at some reviews on the book that could sway you one way or the other as to whether this is a book worthy of your money and your time. Well, we're going to begin a series on the book of Ephesians called Mystery, Majesty, and Moving Forward. Uh, but we're going to begin it not where you typically would think you'd begin a series on a book, and that would be, well, of course, we're going to look at the book. Well, we're not going to do that today. We're actually going to travel back in time 
and look at something that happened about five to ten years before the book of Ephesians was even written. Uh, and that's why I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 19. Uh, in Acts chapter 19, as well as 20, uh, Luke recounts for us Paul's early work in the city of Ephesus. And what he does, he presents us with, as we might think of many cities, a city that does not sleep, and presents us with three aspects that we're going to look at this morning. One is that Ephesus is a city, it's a city that is strategic. It's a strategic city. Not only is it a strategic city, it's a city of opportunity as well as opposition. And then thirdly, we'll see how Ephesus is a city that was transformed by the gospel. So very important for us to kind of weigh each of those. First, that Ephesus was a strategic city. Secondly, that Ephesus is a city of opportunity and opposition. And then third and finally, Ephesus is a city transformed by the gospel. So let's start on this journey by looking at Acts chapter 19 and verse 1. Notice verse 1 simply says, While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. I think it's pretty safe to say that although Paul's travels at times may look unpredictable to us, uh, that his travels are always spirit-led and strategic. Uh, Paul's not just wandering. He's not on a sightseeing trip here. But there's a reason that he wants to go to Ephesus. And that reason is borne out as you think of three maybe facts we know about the city of Ephesus. And the first is simply geographical. So looking at a map of Ephesus, Ephesus is the capital of the Roman province of Asia. Uh, a significant city with a presence in Asia. It is where on present day, it's on the west coast of Turkey. So that gives you some idea of maybe where it is present day. Uh, because of its location, it was also a major trading center. Now you may notice today, if you look on a map, Ephesus is not right on the coast. And that's because of centuries of silt and other things piling up. It's actually now six to 10 miles further inland than it initially was. But strategically, geographically, it's a very important location. And Paul is always praying and looking for where can he go and take the message of Christ in a way that it will spread and permeate and hit more lives. So you have that fact that it's a geographically important strategic location. But look again at chapter 19 and go to verse 29. So we didn't read this part, but we'll see that as Paul is in Ephesus, uh, typical, it seems, of Paul's ministry, there's fruit, but there's also tremendous reaction, not always positive to Paul's message. So in verse 29, you hit upon a scene here where a riot is going to erupt in Ephesus uh, because of one major critic who generates a lot of opposition, Demetrius. But notice what it says in verse 29. Soon the whole city, referring to Ephesus, was in an uproar, 
The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions, from Macedonia and rushed as one man into the theater. Now, this gives us a glimpse of what we know culturally about Ephesus. So not just geographically, but culturally, Ephesus was known and is remembered for two major structures in that city. The first is this theater, this outdoor place in which many different events took place. To give you an idea of the magnitude of the theater, theater was built at the base of a mountain. It consisted of 66 rows of stone-carved seats divided into three big sections that would hold upwards of 25,000 people. The front seats, because those were tended to be more for dignitaries and honorable citizens, those had marble backs. That's the theater that Paul that is talking about, that Luke's referencing here, that this scene as it erupted, people moved into this central place. So culturally, it's a very significant city. But not only did it have this theater, but you notice in this account, it will mention with Demetrius, he speaks of the temple of Artemis, or the temple devoted to Diana, the goddess of fertility and love. So in this city, not just a cultural crossroads, not just a trading center, but you have the presence of this temple. Now again, the magnitude is, is mind-boggling here to think about. Uh, it was about the size of a football field. So basically, we know that's 100 yards, 300 feet, a little bit bigger because it includes what we would call the end zones. But it also had in this temple 127 columns of marble that each were 60 feet in height. So this massive structure that was not on some side street hidden away, but, but was a central part of the city, which, which spoke of their quote-unquote uh, desire to somehow connect with someone or something beyond themselves, considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. That's the city that Paul says, you know what, we have to go there. But there's one other aspect of its strategic nature, and that is a city like this certainly attracts lots of people. And in that attracting of lots of people, there is a religious significance that is evident in Ephesus, much like we might say later in Acts when Paul is in Athens. He senses this, the spiritual void that exists where people are searching but don't know where to look. But to show you how this works out, notice in our reading in Acts 19, verses 1 through 7, you have this, what seems a very strange account where Paul comes upon these 12 men. And these 12 men know about John's baptism, John the Baptist. But I would argue here they clearly are not believers. Uh, the word believe here when it says he came upon these believers means more those who had a certain level of knowledge and information. That this is not teaching like a two-stage kind of conversion where, where you're sort of converted and you know Christ, but you haven't received that second 
fulling in the spirit, that filling, that he comes across these individuals who have a knowledge of John's baptism, but they are not truly believers. Now, why would that be significant? Well, think about the time frame here. John the Baptist is about 20 years before this. So you're talking about a, a, an influence that has been left, at least among this group and certainly some others, who, who are clinging to John's message. And yet that message, without pointing to Christ, is partial and incomplete. That tells us something about the, the spiritual condition in Ephesus. They're not pagans here we're dealing with, but they don't have a full grasp and knowledge of the truth. So that's one group Paul encounters. But then go to verse 8. And notice in verse 8, it simply says, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months. Now, the synagogue would tell you, well, there must be some kind of Jewish presence there because you did need at least 10 men to be able to establish a synagogue. And we know in some of Paul's travels, he will reference, he goes into a city and there isn't a synagogue, which tells us there isn't much of a strong Jewish presence there. So within Ephesus, you do have Jews who believe in the Old Testament, who maybe are very knowledgeable, but they're still not believers. And I hope this starts to get you thinking about this pluralistic atmosphere in Ephesus. That's the world we live in today. Just, just watch in movies, watch on periodicals and things you see, listserv, other stuff. Uh, you know, so many references to other philosophies and religions. Uh, and this thought, as it was true in Ephesus, uh, no one of these religions or philosophies can claim exclusivity. In other words, none of them could say or should say, we are the way. Which is what we find the pressure on Christians today is, if you want to believe that, that's fine. But, but you can't be saying to someone else, this is the truth. This is the way. So a very pluralistic environment tells us something about religiously and spiritually where they are. But now go down to verse 19 of chapter 19. And notice there it says, in a description that we'll come back to, a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. So now we have a third group that's active in this city, those who are actively engaged in satanic rituals, sorcery, uh, the use of amulets, you know, uh, good luck objects, things that you could purchase that should guarantee blessing, security in your life, uh, that this is a known group, a growing group in Ephesus. And in fact, archaeologists have confirmed this when they've come across things referred to as the Ephesus writings. Uh, these writings that contain uh, spells and, and formulas and things and curses that you could be pronounced upon someone. So a very active environment and culture, religiously and spiritually, 
Definitely not Christian by majority, but, but this is the current that's running through there. When you start to weigh these, you start to realize, was this one of the reasons why Paul wanted to get to Ephesus? Not that he was looking at this city, he's thinking, this will be great, I'll be a breather, I'll get together with a bunch of other believers, it'll just be so good for me personally. Uh, but, but this is a city that everybody knows about, but yet it's a, it's a lost city. Maybe in the sense, as we've been looking at how, how Jonah should have viewed Nineveh, this, this is a lost city. It, it's, it's an evil city, uh, and they need Christ. But let me add to this religious environment one other factor. Go to chapter 19, but verse 35. Notice in verse 35 that as this scene is being heard and this riot forming in Ephesus, it says the city clerk who had an invested interest here because if there's any unrest in the city, Rome is going to come at him. And so the city clerk tries to quiet the crowd and says, Men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? In other words, Ephesus was, didn't just have the temple of Artemis there. They saw themselves as bearing the badge of honor, that they were guardians of the temple of Ephesus. They were wardens. And in their ancient philosophy, if, if you Google the picture of what Artemis looked like, it's a, it's a very kind of deformed picture of a woman with all weird features. But, but they believed that that picture was how the gods sent her down to them. In other words, basically, she, she kind of crashed into their world. And they were chosen for this very special task of being guardians, wardens of Artemis. What a picture of a, a pluralistic, a, a spiritually sensitive, hungry environment looking in all the wrong directions. So Ephesus is a strategic city. But then we move quickly in Luke's record here that Ephesus was a city of opportunity and opposition. And so notice there's open doors right away for ministry for Paul. And I draw your attention to, again, verse, verses 1 through 7. This open door that, that he comes in contact with these 12 men who, who don't know the full truth. But yet they clearly embrace the message of John the Baptist. You look at this, and you can this isn't chance. This isn't, oh, what an amazing coincidence that Paul just happens to come upon these people in his trip into Ephesus. The miraculous signs that follow their conversion, where Paul says they, they spoke in tongues and they prophesied. I think was, was very unique for one reason, because of the climate of that city. These are people that are, are fascinated and they're looking for miraculous things to happen. So in an environment like that, how will God display his power and majesty? He will exceed those 
even by this little event. What an amazing opportunity to see the miraculous power of God in a pagan setting that is used to parading the supernatural, but not the godly. So it's an amazing opportunity. Notice verse 8, which we read. The fact that he was able to have some kind of relationship and agreement with those who administered the synagogue that he could teach there for three months. That's an open door for ministry. Remember, Paul was not rich. And I don't think he could walk in and say, well, look, we're willing to rent this. You name your price, we'll pay it. But, but somehow there's an assumption the, the Lord removed any barriers, and, and you'll notice the, the use of a couple verbs here. And unfortunately, in verse 8, the NIV just boils it down to two verbs. It says he argued persuasively. But it actually is three verbs that are there. The first would be that he spoke boldly. Uh, in other words, that, that Paul was unhindered in his teaching. I think sometimes we hear this word boldly, where Paul says, pray for me that I may speak boldly, and that we as Christians should be bold in our testimony. This, this does not mean a loud voice. It does not mean you're in their face, not listening to them. It just means that you speak with great candidness and openness, with, without restrictions. That's the first part of this. He has this open door. He can speak boldly. But the second verb there is reasoning. He, he reasoned with them. It sort of leads you to conclude there was debating. There was interaction. There was questions being asked and, and Paul responding to questions, as well as Paul putting questions out there. And then not only did he speak boldly, not only was he reasoning with them, uh, but this thought of persuading them. This is not manipulation. This is by God's grace winning them to the truth. And I wonder sometimes if we, in our own concept of well, what does it mean to tell, talk to someone about Christ, that our ultimate goal is not to win them to our church. It is not to win them to join a certain ministry that we have. It's not to win them to the men's and ladies' Bible study. It's that they may be one to Christ. And of course, we would love to see them funneled into a place like this where they can grow in the faith. But, but our goal is not to just increase church attendance. Paul's goal was not to just, I need another follower trying to keep up with Apollos and other celebrities in the faith. But he wanted to see them one to Christ. And that was happening, at least from the synagogue perspective, for three months. What an opportunity. What an open door Paul had in this city that doesn't sleep. But then go to verses 11 and 12. We reference the fact that Paul, as he was in Ephesus, God did miraculous miracles through Paul. And, and notice how that is structured by Luke. He doesn't say Paul did amazing things, but God did miraculous miracles through Paul. 
What a testimony in a city that's fascinated with power. To see a power here that is from God. Not that it's just supernatural, but this power is from God. Not from Satan, not a demonic power, not a man-made power. It's clearly from God. And the description here, as you read it, where they can even take, you know, when it says some of Paul's clothing, the, the wording there is literally his, his sweat rags. So, so sort of think of, uh, I mowed the lawn this week. None of you would want to see what my clothes look like after that. But, but imagine taking something that I had sweated in, and, and you pick it up, and you take it to someone who's sick, and you, you just let them touch it, and they're better. They're healed. And, and you may think for a moment, why did Luke take such pain to explain it that way? Well, doesn't it make you think of the ministry of Peter, the ministry of Christ? There's the connection. Isn't Paul carrying out the very ministry of Jesus Christ by the power of Christ? Again, when you start to piece that into the cultural atmosphere there, you can see God at work blowing open these doors for opportunities. Now, there's one more opportunity that may seem almost sort of odd, and it's in verses 13 through 16. And you may have wondered, what is happening here that there's this group of Jewish exorcists who, if you've ever heard the expression that imitation is the highest form of compliment, in a sense, that's what happens here. Paul is having such an influence and an impact that you have this group of Jewish exorcists who also look at trying to cast out demons, and they kind of say, you know what, this works for Paul. You know, we, we know he's doing this, and he's using Jesus' name, so, hey, if it works for him, it might help us, and it might increase our popularity. But when they do it, the results are devastating. But oddly enough, that shows you what an open door here that Paul's ministry and the ministry of those being brought to Christ is being talked about. So much so that others who don't want Christ want to try to imitate, to copy, to do something. The adult class will be moving into a study on revival and religious affection. Uh, and somewhere in there, we'll get to the fact that Jonathan Edwards, who um, played a big role in revival in New England, when he saw the changes that were genuinely happening in Christ, he was very troubled by what he knew would follow. And that is, if Satan cannot outdo what only Christ can do, he will seek to mimic it. He will seek to copy it. And in a sense, that's exactly what you see happening here. These Jewish exorcists have religious, if you might say, religious affection, desire. But they think by adding this phrase, the formula, that it would make them more effective is disastrous. Now, I've said Ephesus certainly was a city of opportunity, but it also becomes a city of opposition. Notice in verse 9, if you go back, Things seem to be great, three months in the synagogue, but there seems to be an abrupt change. 
because of criticism. Notice it says in verse 9, but some of them became obstinate, they refused to believe, and publicly maligned the way. In other words, Paul was forced out of the synagogue. There were those that were hard-hearted, maybe after kind of hearing Paul's message and realizing, wait a minute, this, this guy is, is all about Christ. And we don't hear him talking as much as we thought he would, maybe about the law, the Old Testament, uh, about Jew and Gentile. Uh, they, they refuse to believe. And then notice their attack expands. It's not just Paul they malign, but the way. Uh, a phrase that Luke uh, does include in Acts, uh, another term used for believers. And you can probably guess where they got that from. Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But notice what happens there. Paul's forced to leave, but he doesn't run packing from Ephesus. And we'll get to that in a moment. But that's opposition. Notice in Acts 19, verses 24 through 29, you have a discussion about what boils over into Ephesus. Ephesus, this guardian of Artemis, the temple, also profits off of having this temple. And that is, it's very apparent in these verses that the silversmiths, literally the shrine makers, make these amulets, maybe tied to the temple, little statues, and their sales are down. Times are tough as a shrine maker here in Ephesus. I mean, Paul's taking away your business. People aren't worshiping like they were Artemis. They're not heading to the temple to include this in their offerings. So Demetrius is one of those people. And he gets, as you might think of in the workplace, somebody who can get people fired up. Demetrius gets people fired up here. He, he appeals to their pockets and says, hey, th this is hurting us economically. But then he also has a good trump card. Th this is hurting the worship of Artemis. We're, we're, we're to honor her. We are the protectors of this God. Now notice right away how ironic that sounds. We are responsible to protect her. Because if we don't protect her, she's not going to get honor. She's not going to get glory. And you notice in this description, and I'll pick up just verse 27 here, you have Demetrius saying, there is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. Now we know, overall, Paul spent about two and a half years in Ephesus. A long time for Paul. But yet, as we consider this, notice that it was hard for, leave, for Paul to leave this city because of the work that God was doing there, in spite of the opposition. 
Which brings us to not just Ephesus being a strategic city, not just being a place of opposition and opportunity, but ultimately a city that is transformed by the gospel. Now by that, I don't mean it becomes a new Jerusalem or anything like that. But we see the transforming effect of the gospel in many in Ephesus. And I am confident that even Paul was left changed by his time in Ephesus. But let me draw your attention again to the events here. Because what appeared from our perspective to be roadblocks to God's work actually end up being for the glory of God, for the spread of the gospel. So again, look at verses 9 and 10, and you have that door in the synagogue closed, slam shut. But then you notice it says, midway through verse 10, so Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years. A very interesting development. Because in a way, I think you have Paul's ministry is lent credibility by the fact that he's meeting in a lecture hall. In other words, Tyrannus was a philosopher. And he rents out the hall or makes some arrangement with Paul. Paul's going to use it in the heat of the day. So in Ephesus, lecturers lectured in the morning when it was cool. Basically, by 11 o'clock, things shut down till mid-afternoon. Yet Paul, drawing people by God's grace to tell them about Christ in the heat of the day. And the fact that it's in a lecture hall and the fact that it's associated with a philosopher, I think piqued the interest of many. Didn't just imply this was some kind of fly-by-night, you know, theory. But, but here's someone who, who, they must know what they're talking about. You know, just having it in that place would actually, I think, draw some who may not have ever come. And we've seen this at times if we host something at the library. We've got people that would come to that but not come to a church. Because for many reasons, what they just associate with the church. So in fact, what looked like to us something that might not be in the furtherance of the work and ministry of Paul actually multiplies it. Notice the contrast. The, the citizens of Ephesus are, are fearful that the honor, the glory given their false goddess will dissipate. And you have here the opposite with God's glory. It is intact. And it will be recognized. It will be acknowledged. Even in a pagan lecture hall when Paul fills it to tell people about Christ. But then notice in chapter 20, verse 1, when the uproar had ended, referring to the, the riot that was developing there, had ended, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. You know, look at that and say, well, wait, Paul had to leave. I mean, things had gotten a little out of control. The believers were concerned for him. I mean, when they grabbed up Gaius and Aristarchus, it was only because Paul probably was not in the immediate vicinity where they could lay their hands on him. But anyone could figure out 
Paul's the guy they want. So as you think of Paul leaving here, this is not evidence that God's plans have been frustrated, that the work of the church to spread and make disciples has been brought to an unexpected end. Because we quickly realize, if not for this departure, we might not be reading and studying the letter of Ephesians. Because Paul wrote that letter to this church about five to ten years after this very scene in Acts chapter 19. So it is good for us to think about what does it look like to be transformed by the gospel? This message of what Christ has done, who Christ is. Well, let me take you to Acts 19, but verses 17 through 20 quickly. The scene of a very costly repentance that you have this city steeped in the magical arts who because of the spread of the gospel there are not buying the statutes, the shrines. But most importantly here, notice there comes a point where they take these books, these very powerful, and there was a whole emphasis on the secrecy of their power. Take them and they burn them. And, and notice what Luke wants us to remember. The amount of these books, the value of these books, was 50,000 drachmas. Now, we don't want to get caught up in trying to figure out what's that equivalent to. We do know a drachma was one day's wages in ancient times. So basically, these books were valued at 50,000 days of wages. That's a costly Sacrifice, no matter what dollar figure you try to put on it. That clearly is an outward display of some genuine repentance. And I'll let you look up in Acts chapter 20. You have Paul's farewell to the leaders at Ephesus. And in his farewell, he mentions to them, you know how I have served among you. He testifies to the work of the gospel in their lives and the bond that was formed and the transformation that took place there. The purpose of this was not just to provide an introduction. So now you can say, oh, I know where the city of Ephesus is. I know a little bit about the city. Now I know this is the city that Paul's writing to in Ephesians. But I should raise two other very important questions for us. One is, is this the same God that you serve? Do, do you expect the gospel and the message of who Christ is to change your community, to change the world? Not that it will remove sin. That only Christ can do when he returns. But, but do you really expect it to change things? And has it changed you? And, and to what degree and in what way is that obvious to others? Because if I'm correct in my thinking, the gospel Paul was talking about is the same gospel we're talking about. He didn't have a different gospel. He didn't have a different Bible. He didn't have a different scripture, frame of reference. Same thing. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us for not acknowledging, not just in word, but in action, the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so may we learn from this text, even as we look to a week that is before us, and say, how is the gospel changing me? And how will the gospel change our community and those I interact with? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.